just hold on because uh, I feel like J Wing every time because I'm waiting for um, Ralph and Pujab Hits because he's here now. So uh, let's get to it. Hold on one second. Right, hopefully his connection should be a bit better now. Just uh, fingers crossed. Because um, I said, there we go. There we go. There we go. Got there in the end. Yes, brother. How you doing, man? All good, man. All good, man. Good, good. Thank you for joining me today. Man. I really do appreciate it. I know you guys are busy, even on the road, in the studio, in the radio studio. You're literally everywhere. But thank you for taking the time out to speak to me this evening. Oh, man. It's our pleasure, man. Um, so, first is first, man. How you doing? All good, man. I think uh, lockdown is... I think lockdown two is a little bit different from lockdown one. Um, you know, it kind of seems like a little bit more relaxed and stuff. But still, you know, not being able to see family, friends. And it was my birthday the other day. So, literally, that was spent at home. So, you know, I think it's it's kind of like now kind of catching up now. You know, when... uh, I was, I was going to ask. I know it was your birthday not too long ago. Coupled with Diwali as well. So, you kind of have that... It, it, I mean, I think you know, for for um, for anyone for um, you know Muslim views and stuff, you know, Eid with the first lockdown as well was quite difficult. Um, Diwali as well, you know, I, I know a lot of people, you know, were kind of like, I actually I thought a lot more people would be out there breaking the rules, but from what I saw, a lot of people were were cool. You know, I think a lot, I saw a lot of Zoom calls. I saw a lot of people communicating via other ways and doing smaller fireworks and stuff like that. So. I agree. I think I think it's because I think a lot of people now obviously know that Christmas is on the horizon. They're thinking, you know what, we're going to do everything we can to keep in line. So obviously we get to have the ability to go see friends and family at the festive period. So, uh... so yeah, I mean, I think I think you know, I think it's good that I think people are starting to listen, and hopefully, you know, we can come out of this lockdown for Christmas. Definitely, definitely. How is it? Um, I mean, first off the bat, I mean. From a person within the music scene perspective, obviously the lockdown has been a significant hindrance in certain um, ways in terms of like performances and gigs and things like that. Has that slowed you down from, from a musical perspective? Um, or if anything, it's been a blessing? I mean, I think it, it's a bit of both, really. I think, number one, you're not up against time to say that, yo, you've got to get a track done and released for this date because, you know, you want to catch summer or you want to catch a certain date or whatever. So in terms of, I think that is kind of good. But I think on the other hand is that if you're making dance floor songs and the dance floor is closed, there's a, there's a situation. So, I mean, you know, I think um, it has helped in some ways. I think it's really brought out a lot of good stuff out of producers. I think being at home and being comfortable and kind of just bringing out a bit more personal stories, I think with the music that you're making, I think it's been really great. Um, I think, again, just the bad thing is that when you've made those tunes, being dance floor bangers and the dance floor is closed is going to be situation and a half, you know, clubs and all the rest of it. Yeah, definitely. I think at the same time, you can say that you've got it all stacked up ready for when the clubs do open, that you're ready. You've just got a full catalogue of stuff ready. If, if, if you're a producer and you're not coming out with at least two albums worth of material after all this... There's stuff. something wrong. You're yeah, definitely. Standard, man. I'm deleting you out of everything. No matter. <laughs> yeah, man. I don't need you, man. Yeah, yeah 100%. 100%. Um, that's, that's really good to hear, man. So... Um, the reason I wanted to speak to you today is because um, I've admired your guys' work ethic from the early 2000s. I'm showing my age, but I don't care. Um, and I've really watched your journey from the early 2000s up until you have now. And being of Asian descent, listening to Asian music, mixed with urban stuff, you guys have literally been the epiphany of 
everything that I've admired from a musical perspective. So this is the reason why people are looked at right now. I feel that this is the time for us to appreciate artists and musical producers and DJs such as yourself, because I feel that we're in a time where we need to get away from a mental perspective. And sometimes music is that perfect getaway to just chain, get rid of the negativity and be in a positive limelight. And I feel that sometimes for me personally, I could just sit in my car, put some tunes on, listen to music from yourself or anybody else. And you're literally just forgetting about all the crap that we're dealing with at the moment. So I just want to put out, yeah, I just want to say thank you for everything you've done from a musical perspective, because without you guys, we'd be in a, in a difficult place. Well, I mean, thank you. I mean, I think that's the you know, great compliment, firstly, you know, um, and I'm, you know, and we appreciate the fact that, you know, someone like yourself is appreciating that we're putting in the work, we're putting in the time. And, you know, again, I think that it's not only just a certain sector of people, it's not only just like one or two individuals that are affected by this it's a whole nation, it's, it's worldwide. And we're glad that we could um, try and lighten the mode through our radio show, through whether it be doing Instagram lives, parties, all the rest of it. You know, I think that it's important that, you know, we understand that everyone's going through this. And I think, you know, it, it's a, while it's affecting people in different ways, we hope that the music that we are playing or we're doing are helping people in different ways. So yeah, man, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that that's hitting home somewhere, man. Yeah, 100%, man. Thank you once again. Um, Again, the reason I want to speak to you is because I want people to kind of understand your journey. I know that, you know, I know for a fact, a lot of people know that you guys have been interviewed left, right and centre, but I think that it's time to bring it back and just really understand the nitty-gritty. But I'm going to start off first of all. I know, I could be wrong, you had a stint in Holland for a bit. Back in the day, you did like, you kind of did, um, I think you had some like internships or whatever, you did... Uh, Radio broadcasting, yeah. um, 22 tracks in Holland, if I'm not correct. Two tracks. Obviously. Wow, I've <laughs> <laughs> I think, like, what, how, it, how that started was is that um, in, like, 2001, 2002, we started going out to Holland. And in the same way that we started seeing the uptake of the Asian music scene being taken in the UK, in Holland, it was, um, you know, in Holland, you could, you could see that there was an uptake there as well. So... Um, yeah, I think that we went out there a couple of times and, you know, the radio stations were really, really picking up on exactly what we were playing in the clubs. Same thing that we were doing over here with One Extra or the rest of it. And they were, they were just like, yo, you know what? Is it possible we can just do a show out there as well? You know, so um, well, I think we would like, we'd fly out there like maybe like once every other month and do a live radio show and then do a live event as well. And then we'll pre-record the rest of it in London and then send it over. Send over. Yeah, and then that kind of worked really well for I think like nearly like three, four years, and then, and then I think it just became. And this is kind of like before um, the internet in terms of the at what capacity we work at now, right? Where now like you've got so many of these like websites where you can upload two, three gigs of of uh, music, real, yeah. even in an hour. You know what we had to do? Well, we had to DHL that stuff, man. <laughs> we had to mixes, put them on the CD, and then head down to DHL and send that. Sometimes even a tape, even bro. Something that's so school is that. Yeah. So I mean, you know that 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 was that, and then you know it really helped us like break that audience. And you know we saw while going out there, we saw the uptake of like Imran Khan. If you look at you know his his um, rise throughout the music scene, you know we saw people like that come through. 
And, you know, we're glad that we've been a part of their story even before they got famous. So, you know, that was a good thing. And 22 Tracks was the same kind of thing where, you know, they kind of saw that what we were doing on Fun X and One Extra and all the rest of it. And they just kind of wanted us to create playlists before playlists were what we see it is now, you know. But that was for predominantly for like South Asian kind of discoveries and things like that, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, there's been there's been a lot of um, there's been a lot of scenes around the world that have been bought through the internet. You know, if I look at the the music scene that comes out from the UK, was quite closely connected because you had um, the Asian population literally down the road um, from where the music was being sold. But let's say if you're in America. The closest Indian spot, if you're living in the middle of Texas, is literally like thousands of miles away. So when kind of Napstar and places like that kind of open, LimeWire, BearShare, the whole shebang. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and like you know, like you can still probably find online like a lot of the artists that are killing it right now, like Mickey Sings and you know Amir Sandhu and people like that. You know, you can go there and find like their really early demos. You know, and you can find DJs who are now like really big producers. You can find their early mixes, man. They don't. Even yeah, know. man. Mm-hmm. Oh, so, um, yeah, man. The internet really, really opened up markets for everyone. Really. Do you kind of miss that kind of era of like when you had the ability to just literally electronically share music? I understand from an artist perspective, it's kind of crap because obviously in terms of royalties and things like that. But you had the ability. I miss those olden days right, where you can literally just jump on a computer, type in like other job bits, go type in that dual instrumental, and you literally find like you know. <laughs> I mean, um, we kind of, so when we um, at the time, 50 Cent had just arrived. And we were reading these stories in XXXL about um, how 50 was using the bootleggers to become his distribution network. And we just sat there, we were like, do you know what we're going to do? We're going to just give our stuff to everyone and see what happens. And it, it kind of worked, right? You know, to tell you the truth, if you're going to be out there going to pirate music, you're going to do it regardless. There ain't going to be nothing that's going to change your mind to be like... You're doing it. Right, you're doing it. If I want to go and find whatever song it is, uh, obviously, I, me not being me, but as in if, if I'm a person that's going to bootleg a song, I'm going to bootleg it. It doesn't matter where it comes from. But we had a, a, a lot of our population, that, a lot of our, uh, uh, people that listen to us and follow us, they were ready to buy the music. Um, so we were cool with that, man. Like, you know, we, we were okay to take the hit on the people downloading it for us to become more famous. And that's kind of what happened because our music was going over to, say, America um, bootlegged. It wasn't coming over like, we were getting a lot of sales, legit, but most of it was coming from, was going bootlegged over there. So we we're like, well, if they're bootlegging it anyway, why don't we bootleg it ourselves and send it out there? Yeah. Like, we printed up, like, lo-fi copies of albums, you know, on, like, inkjet printers and all the rest of it. Yeah, <laughs> You know, and then, you know, we'll tell our label, look, young man, this is what we're doing. They'll be like, yeah, cool, man, because what we're seeing is we're seeing that um, we're seeing an uptake in people buying the legitimate thing than buying the fake. So... If anything, at the same time, you're getting your name out there, man, literally... That's, uh, that's another that's another kind of a positive on a negative, but, you know, you would get your name heard. Yeah, I mean, that that was it. I mean, you know, the label was collecting the money from the sales, you know, and they were passing some of it on to us. But what we wanted was the gigs and the name to be out there. So in order for that to happen is it kind of, we had to kind of <laughs> shuffle our stuff ourselves, man. Definitely, definitely. Um, 
let's set the scene, right? It's early 2000s. I, 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 know your, I know your story. I know with Raj, rest in peace. Yeah. Um, you know, with D as well. Uh, big up D every single time as well. But I know from the early 2000s, um, set the scene, man. I'm, I'm going to just fast forward it a bit. I want you to set the scene where you were doing the capacity clubs of a thousand, thousands of thousands of people. Because for me, like I know like the clubs like Equinox and, and Hippodrome and things like that, that is where the UK Asian music scene was re- really had the ability to take off because of clubs such as them having the capacity and yeah. people like yourself playing there and playing tunes that people didn't even hear of. Please like, kind of set the scene and let us kind of get a feel of what you were going through and how it was in terms of that journey. I mean, I think in terms of like our story, there's been three very, very pivotal places that have, that have helped the journey along, let's just say. So initially it was um, Limelight, which probably a lot of people might have heard of back in the day. So that set the scene of DJs coming to clubs to mix um, Western music with Eastern music. You know, Eastern music at the time, barring like Bali, Jag- uh, Bali Sagu and Punjabi MC, was really traditional music. Didn't really have any bass to it. Just about started to have a bit of a hip hop beat to it. And then what we need, what we did was we started to blend that with Notorious B.I.G., Tupac, um, Gangstar, all these different people. So that kind of set the scene of what we were trying to do. Um, the next phase was when we then started to go to those bigger clubs. So you had Bagley's, um, Hypnodrome, all those kind of things, where those kind of things, where those kind of clubs will pop off. Now, because the capacities were bigger, it will be DJs and bands playing at the same time. And the bands would look at it and be like, how come the DJ is killing us? They sometimes didn't really get it. Oh, wow. Like, beats to their stuff. So that's why, like, from, like, 1999 to, like, 2001, around then, it was quite, like, a bit of a a, a rough ride for, like, bands and, and DJs to be getting along. But then UK Garage came along. Now... UK Garage mixed with Bhangra was DJ driven all the way, like it was anyway, right? Garage music is DJ driven. So with that happening, um, you had the transition of basically the RDB, us, um, you know, everyone that was basically associated with RDB, you know, Tiger Style, all these different people, they all came through that era. And that kind of there was the birth of really what we know as being Desi Beats because these artists were basically creating exactly what you said in Tin Wheel, taking Eastern music, mixing it with West. And, and fusing it together, absolutely. And the best thing about it was that these kind of R&B tracks, and the doll and the kind of the tumbi and all that stuff just, just sat on it nicely, man. It just worked yeah. perfectly. I mean, it was what we've been doing for ages anyway. It wasn't like something new. It's just that now we knew that there was more of a market for it. So the R&B side of things, you know, you had like Rishi Rich, Jay Sean, um, even that some of our early stuff as well was really, really R&B orientated. And really, it was kind of simple, was that while, you know, people, some people made tunes for the clubs, we just wanted to make sexy music, really, and, and that's kind of what we wanted it to be. When it, we didn't want it to be that Punjabi hit squad, while the name kind of gave out that whole thing where it's like, yo, you know what, we're, we're big, we're bad, we're meant to be this, we're meant to be that. We wanted to be the yo, man, we're about, you know about smooth music as well and you know and we've got that influence come through anyway so yeah man that the the merge between them both was was amazing man like you know i mean you the perfect example i'm gonna talk about the garage track later on but the perfect example is um that 
you were the Mariah Carey track. Now, for me being, you know, a teenager, early 2000s, I heard this track and I was like, oh, like, what the flip is this? Because me, I'm Sri Lankan, but I appreciate Indian music. I appreciate the door. The door is one of my favourite instruments, acoustic instruments. And then when I heard, you know, Indian kind of, you know, instruments being played on a, a westernized track for me that was like a first and i was like whoa what this works man and again i know the story behind you and the mariah carey thing i think and i know you've had plenty of discussions about it but for people who looked around could you kind of like again go go how did that come about i know that obviously you were signed with Def Cham and things like that and i know i'm kind of rushing into it but i want to know specifically around the kind of scene where you walk into a room mariah carey's on the phone just talk us through it. i mean so so the mariah carey happened before we got signed to Def Jam. So what it was is um, Semtex, um, who's over at Def Jam at the time, was like, yo, you know what? I love your stuff. Like, he had, Basically, the, the album, The Streets, had just come out. And then, because we were seeing Semtex on a regular at One Extra, we kept him feeding him all the, all the good songs. So he was like, yo, you know what? Like, I really, really like this kind of stuff. Um, would you be interested in doing some remixes? And at the time, we were like, remixes? I don't know about that. You know, like what? Like you're just gonna give us the the acapella and whatever? No, they're like he was like, no, no, no. I'm gonna get it together properly, and then we'll release it. Mm -hmm. All like, okay, cool. So then we just kind of like went to the studio, put it together, and just had the mindset of basically um, doing kind of what we did anyway. Really, you know, in, in terms of a club, you know, boy wasn't really a, um, a club banger, if that makes sense. Like it might have turned into a bit of a a club banger later on down the line because people think. But initially, it was more of like one yeah. for the cars, one for the yeah. chill out. So we kind of just wanted to put that um, put that out there. So then, um, when we did the song, and then we sent it off, and we thought, ah, oh, the next thing we're going to see is we're just going to see it come out, and and that's it. And then Semtex was like, no, 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 you've got to, yeah, you're going to have to chat to her about it because she clears all of the songs. She don't care who's done the mix, <laughs> is it? You know what I'm saying? And we're like, all right, cool. Yeah, just send over the paperwork. And at that time, we had a lawyer and all the rest of it. And then um, we used to go up to Def Jam quite a lot. And then um, we were there. And then basically, in a room, they were like, come in, come in, come in. We're like, what? And they were like, Mariah's on the phone. And you better chat to her. And she was like, you look, guys, I love this, 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 this. And I think she, I think there was something that she said that she like wanted like the sitar turned up or something like that. But it was No way. Wow. Like, we don't she was very that. specific so irrespective of if it was a remix or not she had the final say of how it should be according I mean, to her own requirements put it this way if you look back at her vocal range and you look back at the songs that she's put out um you'll understand the reason why she has creative control over what she has to do so for us it was like oh my god we're speaking to mariah but for everyone else in the room, it's like, this is standard procedure, man. This like, is normal. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that kind of, that's kind of turned into quite a lot of the artists that we, I think the only person that didn't really, like, know about things or was kind of cool to it was like Ashanti or things like that. But I guess mm -hmm. they were just on the road all the time. So they were just like putting the music out and that's it. Where Mariah was really, really picky about it. And plus it was the first release on Def Jam as well. So I think she wow. was Sure, she always wanted to make sure it's perfect, of course, yeah. it's understandable. I mean, for me, the Mariah Carey thing is the tip of the iceberg in terms of your career journey. I mean, you know, you've done remixes for like, for Rajav, and I, I, could, I could go on, but I think, 
again, yeah, the Death Jam thing, for you probably been at that, uh, not early stage, but kind of the preliminary stages of career, that must have been like, whoa, what is going on? Like, do you, did you feel that your career progression was just like, had just sped up like a thousand, or was it progressive and you thought, you know what, this is manageable? i tell you the truth, within, within starting Punjabi Hit School, within two years, we had been signed to a national radio station, um, one extra, and mm-hmm. signed with Def Jam. And then on top of that, had high high out. And for us, we were like, how the hell do we slow this down? <laughs> yeah. And at the same time, we were like, we can't get enough of this. Like, you know, there, there would be times where we would forget what days we had gigs. Because, you know, and I remember once, like, Mark bought, like, uh, Mark and I, like, we forgot a gig, basically. We got booked for, for two different places and we forgot one gig. And that's when Asian gigs were basically happening every single day of the week. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, whatever, whatever. And people were happy to pay and to have you, you know, oh, you got a gig in London? No problem. Can you be in Birmingham at the same time or whatever? So, like, you know, we're, we're getting that, that kind of vibe. And what ends up happening is uh, we forget one gig and then we were like, shit, man. And Mark was like, yo, you know what? We need to get a diary, man. So, like, literally we had this, like, one diary in the studio and we just had, like, dates after dates. After really? Dates. Yeah. And then, like, we were just, it was just so fast but we were learning a lot we were meeting great people great people that we can work with um so i think in terms of um around then the creative flow was really great so i mean again we hadn't been around that flow so it might have been shit for other people that might have been expecting something different but for us you know like two brown kids and and and, and one white guy from where we're from south or hounslow to be up in that mix, to be up in that world was like extremely special for us. How did it feel that, again, being two brown guys and a white guy from West London and Southall, being, if not w- probably one of the biggest contributors to the UK Asian music scene, to where it is now? Because I'm, I'm hoping that you acknowledge this, that if it weren't for you guys and your, you know, your interruption into the UK Asian music scene, it kind of wouldn't have been there maybe not to where it is now, because not only did you have contributions as a music production and DJ, you were also the, the middle person who linked that person to this person and so and so forth. But how did it make you feel that a lot of, you know, especially in predominantly West London, a lot yeah. of the Asian people are looking to you guys. So do you know what? Like, you guys did it for us, especially in the 2000s. I mean, for, I, I, okay, so there's two parts to that. The first part is that um, we always big up where we're from. So wherever we come from, Southall has always been the the reason why we are who we are um because if it wasn't for that then it would you know we wouldn't we wouldn't be um we wouldn't be as famous as we are um and with that means that Southall helped us become bigger now mm-hmm. our contribution to the music i wouldn't have it any other way you know um i'm glad i get recognized for it thank you for that um but if i didn't get recognized for it i would still be doing what I'm doing. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, I'm 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 glad I'm glad that somebody recognizes it for it. But I think that still comes through because sorry, I think it doesn't come through as much because the story's be still being told. So I think the day that the story stops and it is when it all comes out. Right, yeah. So you know I'm glad that we have been around enough to turn around and, and make a difference back then. I'm glad that we're still making a difference and we continue to do so, you know, because there's, di- there's, there's so many, there's been so many different parts of the scene that 
that are coming out and are integrating with each other and everything. And, you know, I'm glad that we're still keeping what, what we started alive, you know. I mean, if you go to a YouTube channel, I'm going to give you, this is what I always do in my life, just to make sure people appreciate your, your work. And this is like a stats section of the, of the live. So YouTube, yeah. you have 10.6 thousand subscribers, right? Uh, Dimira Fijirahat, um, in 2012, I think you, you've got 4 million views on that video. Uh, Teda PR, you've got 3.5 million views on that video. Uh, PR Hogia with uh, Alicia, I think that's got about 2.5 million views. So that in itself, from a YouTube, I'm going to talk about YouTube first, that in itself hopefully should be a reflection of, again, your contribution, your work, and how people still appreciate music. Because if you go on those videos, you go on the comments, you're seeing people, streams of people saying, yeah. I'm coming back to this after five years, and it's still a, a banger now. Like, yeah. Again, this is what I mean. I yeah. mean, this is the perfect example of what you're saying. I mean, yeah, I mean, it, see, the thing is, um, so we're up on the business side of it quite a lot as well. So I read into the stats, I read into all that kind of stuff all the time. And um, you need to in this day and age, you need to understand, um, you need to understand statistics and data. Even to be a DJ normally, you need to understand what tempos are. So if I need to understand that, I also need to understand what the business end of the business does and music. So um, when we released those songs, this is when YouTube was starting to explode. So those numbers that you're seeing are numbers that are basically at that time were great. Well, amazing that like now if you know whatever somebody drops a video it reaches like 100 million in one day well like you understand like isn't we all know what is behind that but in terms of those videos reach a lot more high but that's because they drop now so but then if we had dropped Dilmera now yeah you understand that the the rate of the pickup rate would have been a lot higher but however you can counteract that counter argue that and say well Nowadays, you've got so many supportive platforms that assist you with kind of getting those views. Whereas, if anything, your views are more organic than what they are now. Yeah, I mean that's the that's the that's the good thing that I hold dear is that they're all organic. And like I said, like the the lifeline of a song nowadays is like a month. So like, you're yeah, like, you're already getting people saying, "When are you dropping the next one, bruv?" Yeah, yeah, if that, yeah, if that. old school after a month, and you're like, "What?" And it's crazy, man. Um, but yeah, like I think that um, I think you know that I'm glad that in the comment section you look at it and you go, people are still appreciating it. It still gets played. It's still it, kind of song that we want it to be out there, and you know that's even that's, in the comment section you see people reminiscing. Oh my god, I heard this when I was back in whatever club it was, and you guys are smashing this down, and it really gives a sense of reminiscing the early days of the the true young Asian culture when it was this massive man like mid 2000s it was hectic which goes into my point of where you released high high um you mentioned about garage you yeah. know being a, a perfect fusion with the asian beats yeah. and you guys dropped that with high high and that was massive because that tune in itself enabled the uk asian djs who were trying to get to a position cross over to the mainstream yeah. and that is that was what you did I mean, that song there, and it's funny because that was the last song that we did for the album. And actually, that was a remix to the original song. So um, when we put that together and then we, I literally, that was meant to be a mashup. So initially we had it over a different beat. 
And then when we had it, added it to the album, we did like a Desi remix to it with Dawn and all the rest of it. So that was the original version. So if you look at the... Oh, track, wow. I didn't know that. Wow. Original version. Crazy. And then like we were like, I think like one or two songs um, short. And then I said to Dio, you know what? Let's do a garage remix to Hi Hi. And on top of that, I want to get a female MC, man. Like there must be someone around that we can get. And an Asian. Yeah. <laughs> literally, D was like, where the hell are we going to find someone like that? Like, there must be no one that, that, like, girls don't really spit like that. No, nah, they're at home, man, <laughs> at the time. Like, apart from, like, hardcore and all the rest of it, but that wasn't really where we were going, right? We were kind of going to more of a garage thing, and I also wanted it authentic to, to what it, I needed someone who, who was listening to garage music, if that makes sense. There's no point in getting someone else to spit on something when they're not a part of what they're doing. So then, well, um, yeah, exactly. Literally, Scandalous was working in the shop that um, Metro Music. Um, in Southall, like, right? Southall, yeah. And then um, I knew um, Scandalous from school. Um, and like me and her were, were friends anyway from school. So then um, when she was working there, like Dee walked in there once. Like, I think we were selling tickets for something at the time. So like, Dee went in to go drop some tickets. And then she was like, yo, Dee, uh, um, I'll rap. And he was like, all right, cool. Well, rap on the spot for me. Do you have this? Do you have this thing of always going out to people and anyone, anytime anyone would say you're a rap, he'd call, he'd call them out. He'd say, "Do it then." And I was like, "Yo, <laughs> man, someone's gonna do some like weird bars, man. You're gonna have to because <laughs> they're gonna be big and and you know what I'm saying you can't <laughs> mess with that other. You know, like, and she did, and he, she did flows, and then D was like, "All right, cool. What are you doing later on today?" And she was like, "Nothing." He's like, "All right, cool. Our studios, our, our studio used to be actually." like behind one of the shops on South of Broadway. So um, at the time we're in there every single day making music and all the rest of it. And then he was like, yeah, cool. You'll come to the studio, man. So then um came to the studio and I was like, yo, we you saying you're cool? Because I knew already. I was, I was like, okay, cool. You're rap now. She goes, well, actually I do more like, I do more poetry, but obviously more spoken words. So I can do this. I said, all right, cool. Um, would you do a garage tune? She's like, yeah, of course I do garage tune. I listen to garage all the time. I was like, nah. All right, cool. Get in the booth. Let's do this. And then we recorded like one or two takes of of what what ended up being high high. And then she went away. And then we kind of like did like a rough mix of it. And then she heard it. And she was like, "Do you know what?" She said, "I think that when I approached the song, it was I did it from a point of view of um, she became too conscious about it." She said, "What I want to do, I want to reflect what I see when I go to a club." So that's why when you hear Hi Hi, she talks about the girls. She talks about the guys. She talks about yep. Because whether anyone likes it or not, that's what Asians are doing at the time. That's what that is exactly what was happening. So, and she reflected that. Um, and then we were like, yeah, this is sick. So then that's when we signed her and then we kind of did more stuff with her and all the rest of it. So, yeah, man. Did you was... anticipate it getting that big? Did um, you anticipate that? Oh, so I think the first... So when we... So this is another thing that... That high high that you hear is actually track like eight in the album. It's, it was so low down the down the list of, of songs that we were like, I'm not sure because that's always at the time as well that Garage was a little bit phasing out. Grime was coming up, you know. Um, uh, you had um, Wiley come through with what you call a Garage, like the more Eskimo sound was coming through where we had like a Garage Garage song. Um, so that's why we we were a little bit skeptical about putting it or placing it higher on the track listing than it was. Um, but in terms of 
because I was already playing a garage mix of that song out in clubs and it was already killing it, I was like, you know what? Even if it doesn't work, I've got a song to play in the clubs. And then... Regardless. Yeah. And then what happened was, is I think we, we ended up obviously having our songs with Mets and Tricks and everything and playing that out so much. And then we did this gig in Watford. And um, I, I don't know if Smudge is online somewhere here, but he'll remember this because uh, we still owe him 130 quid. But um, <laughs> we, we, we ended up um, stopping the music and saying, yo, um, who wants CDs and a T-shirt? And then basically, all these people basically came forward to go get themselves a T-shirt and whatever. And in the process, the DJ booth was at, it was at Destiny's Watford, yeah? And there was a DJ booth. Oh, definitely. But yeah, yeah. They had a um, uh, glass screen in front of you, right? And basically, they're pushing it, that's the glass screen. So oh. we got told, yo, man, you owe me money for that. <laughs> as soon as that happened, I was like, oh, shit. And D was like, yo, quickly play a tune before it gets a bit too hectic. So then I play high, high. Everyone starts like going mad, and I'm like, "Yo, are we missing the trick?" Like, as somebody else walked in or something, yeah. But then people were like going crazy, and then people were, like singing the song, and I'll be like, "Oh shit!" So then when we walked out of the club that day, I was like, "Oh, you know what? This high high killed it. Like, without a doubt, it was probably the biggest song that we played that night." Um, and then we did it again in Birmingham, same thing. So now we knew that we had this hit on our hands. Um, so when we went over to Def Jam, they were like, yo, we want a Mundial Bachke, like from you guys. And then we'll be sitting there every single night trying to create something out of a sample or whatever. Like I've used every every 90s R&B hip hop song that you can think about. Um, I've used it over an Asian dog <laughs> and, and given it to Def Jam. I think Def Jam have like, and now this is what <laughs> Yeah. Full of tracks that never got released, and then um, when we said to Semtex, "Yo, listen, I'm, I'm, you can go and try to release this song, but it's not, it's being forced, so we don't really want to force it." But yo, trust me, Hi Hi is the one for you guys. It came across as like, nah, 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 and then in the end, they were like, "Alright, cool, let's go with this." So um, yeah, then when they put it out, that's just when it hit, man. Like it just blew. Yeah, it was. It was Big, but it just blew up once Def Jam got hold of it, man. I'm going to use a, a really weird analogy, right? So, obviously, you've got premiership football. You don't have a lot of Asian footballers in, in premiership football. Now, being UK music scene, predominantly, you know, um, Afro-Caribbean, white music and whatnot, being an Asian, especially in the early 2000s, coming into the mainstream music scene, did you find a sense of difficulty trying to integrate and transition into that kind of scene? Or did it just sit right? It just, you, you just, it was an easy transition you fell into it. Or did you have some kind of difficulties along, on, along the way? Um, I would say that, yeah, there were definitely difficulties in terms of having a name called um, Punjabi. History. I mean, being, being Asian, people acknowledge you are taking you seriously for your craft. Yeah, yeah. because firstly, they, had, they, they were trying to take us seriously because they weren't taking it seriously because they would see like three young kids walk in brown and they're talking to, and they're talking to talk right and then when we're talking about yo we've got this uk garage song and they're saying in the article that they're reading is that uk garage is over and wiley's on the front and he's like yeah it's all about eskimo and we're trying to sell them something they're like well hold on not only are you guys new to what's going on like you lot are definitely misreading it all 
and it took us a long time to convince people to yo be like this is a song you need to back i'm just using hi hi as an example this is a song you need to back because this is big from where we are in our music scene and it's only then it got mtv bass channel u all those things started getting a plug and even now when you play it it's become the hit so i think in terms of the color of the skin yeah i guess we were we were living in a time where it was difficult to be brown anyway 9-11 had just happened you know people who were who were muslim were getting the spotlight was on us um people who were Sikh with turbans were getting oppressed yeah yeah generally were getting stopped and searched for no reason so I think in terms of in the society that we're all living in, we were definitely feeling the pressure. But I think we were so ingrained into like, yo, let's just keep this shit moving, man. We ain't got time. So when it came up to it, we were already like, all right, cool, you just shut the door, no problem. And as well, what helped us was that we had great people within one extra. Um, a manager, Ray Paul, who backed us fully when it came down to doing tours, music, you know, all that kind of stuff. Because One Extra was supporting us heavily, it meant that a lot of people couldn't ignore us. And if they were ignoring us, they knew that there was someone else in line straight after them to be like, ah, oh, shit, okay, cool. We've got to take it seriously. So I guess it, it kind of worked in, in, in a way for us. It's amazing that you had like a mainstream channel such as One Extra who specifically uh, focused on Urban's kind of, you know, the ethnic kind of music culture and you had such a great backing that enabled you to do all these tours and do all these gigs and whatever. I think that's what we liked about it. I think that's what gave us the edge was that you had this station that was a black music station from the BBC um, and it played predominantly black music and then Asian music you'd hear with it. And you know what? That was just a reflection of the time. Um, there were people in that building that knew that we were all partying in, in harmony, man. Like, that's what was happening. And, you know, they, they recognised the hit when they heard it. So when you hear, like, at the time, you heard, obviously, Mundial the Bachke, the Night Rider song was huge. Um, Truth Hurts. Um, we're Rakim. Right. Now, already you're, you're, you're talking about the most famous um, Bollywood playback singer to come through with one of the most famous or to team up with two of the most famous producers, DJ Quick, Jesus. Mm -hmm. um, to then be featured on a song with one of the greatest MCs in the world, Rakim, with one of the newest talents, True Hurts, you know, and a song blew up. And if you hear about it, it was, that song could have been done by Jignish from down the road. <laughs> it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't a, it wasn't in terms of, for Asians, it wasn't nothing we ever heard before, but in terms of a song, mate, incredible. You know, and that's what Dr. Ray does, right? When he executive produces something. He 100%. So. 100%. I mean, I'm just, I'm just want to take it back a bit. I mean, how was it being an Asian? I know that you, you, know, you did your studies, you went to university, you did the whole shebang. But how was it being from an Asian background, doing this, killing it in the music scene, and your kind of career was predominantly focused towards music. How was it being from an Asian household? How was that acknowledged? How was that um, portrayed you know, in terms of your family, especially your parents or, or, you know, or whoever was obviously, you know, overseeing your childhood? I know, I know, I know, um, I know a lot of people 
um, their families weren't into it. They were like, yeah, you know what? You can have your fun DJing and all the rest of it, but go out there and get a real job, as I like to call it, in it. And um, I know a lot of people still had that struggle. So that's great. I think for me, it was a case that I was always ingrained into it. My mum and dad didn't see me any doing anything but being within music. And I remember the day that like, my mum and dad like said to me, look, you know, you want to be music, that's not a problem. You know, we, we, we want to support you and that. You know, I did media studies. I, I you know, I, did, I went to door classes, dumbi classes, music classes, DJs, like I was clubs, all that kind of stuff, house parties. So they knew that I liked music. That's what it was. And they, and they saw passion. So I guess when you see passion, you know. You, you just want to encourage it. So I remember like, I was like, well, you know, I, I, and even in myself, I was like, you know, maybe DJing I won't be able to do for the rest of my life because at that time there wasn't a lot of pay in it. And like you said, the opportunities weren't as, as much as what they probably were. Um, so I remember like I started to get work at various record labels and, you know, I, I, I liked that. I liked the music side of it. And I think that it was just a case of that I would, I think it was um, a guy at BMG Records when I, when I did work experience there. He would say to me like, Yo, man, you you look tired, man. Like, well, you cool. Like, you're doing the work, but yo, you're right. You're tired. I said, yeah, yeah. He said, what were you, where were you, man? Like, I was like, yeah, man, I was DJing in this club last night. It was Complex or wherever, like, it might be Bagley's or whatever it is, blah, blah, blah. And he was baffled. He was like, yo, like, well, what are you doing in all these clubs? Like, I was like, yo, I'm, I'm for real DJing. That's what I'm actually doing. And he's like, all right, cool. And I was like, yeah, man, there was like 4,000 people in there. And at the time, 4,000 people in Bagley's warehouse was... A great night, but it definitely wasn't like a one-off, man. That like, <laughs> you have Bagley's on on a on a Tuesday, and then Zenith on a Thursday with you know four thousand and two and a half, three thousand and another. So you know those kind of days are like, you know, I had to explain that to him, and he was like, you know what? If you carry this on, you could be the person that we sign. <laughs> that makes sense. Like I was going in there, and I was sitting there with like we take that and all these kind of accents. So, but the guy was like, yo, you could be this next person, man. So. You know, I think that's when I really, really started to take it seriously in a way. And again, like I think the dots just connect. You know, we D and I were really, really um, adamant and wanted to basically. We wanted this. You know, we wanted the music. You know, we want, We we worked jobs to fund our record habit. If that makes sense. You know, and I know a lot of people out there are like, "What? Well, what do you mean, man? You get no like records are ten pounds." That's the reality. That was the reality then. You know, you'd spend that money on there so that you could buy the fresh bootleg in, in you know, to play that one song first. And then, like, we met, uh, not that we met Mark, we knew Mark for years, and, of course, we were friends for years. But it was only, like, when Mark said, listen, look, there's an opportunity here, like, for us to do this, what are you guys saying? Should we, should we, let's put it together. And I think it was then that we could be like, you know what? And, and Mark, like, you know, he knows, he knows it. He, he sees it from a long way away, and he knows how to package it well and put it together. And, you know, we just formed it and, and, and it worked, you know. And, and you mentioned Marky Mark. Um, can you just kind of under, explain the kind of dynamics within Punjabi Hit Squad where Marky Mark was with Punjabi Hit Squad? Um, Punjabi Hit Squad is like one third Mark. There is, in terms of um, what he was doing, I mean, this brother is, um, is literally in the studio with us every single day. He understands Punjabi. So he understands lyrics, content, all that kind of stuff. He knows him, right. all that kind of stuff. Um, so, yeah, you know, he's there making sure that, you know, the songs are kind of put together. And I think 
as well, like being in the studio and everyone being a producer probably sometimes isn't the greatest thing because you're getting too much of, for us anyway, for other people it might be different, but for us, like all the people having ideas left, right and centre, Mark took that role of being like, all right, listen, guys, you lot produce, I'll give it the, like, the executive listen over so that we can definitely make sure we're all on the same page, you know. From a, from a commercial perspective. Yeah, 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 yeah. But not, not only that, I mean, you know, he, he, would, he would listen to things and be like, yeah, I think, what do you think about this, Rav? And D, you know, what do you think about this? And then conversations and stuff. So he'd be there with that. He'd be there with us at the gigs. Um, you know, he, he was, he's a part of it. And that's, that's kind of it, you know. The, the, he, in terms of the contribution, he's, he's contributed the same amount as D and I have to all of this. So, you know, he's, he was definitely frontline, man. I think, obviously, from the days, and I mentioned this uh, uh, before, Rav, is that you had the big clubs, the big capacity where you were, you were able to expand your audience to the music, which a lot of people didn't hear. Now, obviously, those clubs have now closed, which really, really is painful um, because, obviously, this was the, the heart and soul, especially from a UK-Asian music perspective. Now, we don't have that. Now, do you feel that things, obviously, we have to go with time, you have to go with, you know, with change and whatnot. Obviously, now, there isn't much of a focus apart from shows like yourself on BBC Asian Network on Fridays and Saturdays but do you there's not I don't for me I don't I'm, I'm not sure I'm, I'm not within the Asian kind of music scene anymore but in terms of like in terms of clubbing and things like that are there stuff like that now where you can go to and really enjoy like Asian music nights and stuff like that like I used to or is it just not non-existent I think what happened was is that um 2000s till like 2010 there were loads and loads of Asian club nights every night of the week kind of thing and all the rest of it. There was one or two good ones and there was a lot of shit ones. On top of that, what you'd get is you'd get a lot of people, um, universities putting up their own nights, which were really, really good. They were massive. Also, what ends up happening is that there are very, very smart people that, again, when you're starting up a business and when you're starting up doing something, you will always have people who take things very, very seriously. And... Um, I've got to shout out people like Hanif um, H1 who basically does Ministry of Sound you know he took his stuff so well with Milkshake that now Milkshake has become like the number one um, student night around so that's number mm -hmm. one um, what happens is that he also helps put on other nights so there was Desilicious started branding so now when Hot you and Spicy you guys started as well? Well Hot and Spicy was a little bit before that but in terms of like super clubs, those big nights, um, you know, brand, the branding was really, really it. You know, people knew that they didn't want to go to a different name every single week or every single month. They would want to just go to like Desilicious once a month and get their whole bunga fix out of their body for that one. <laughs> and then back to reality again. Yeah. And, you know, we were seeing that in London. We were seeing that up in Birmingham with AMS, um, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And now... Um, it, it's kind of like, even though there's not as many club nights for Asian music, um, shout out to Jazzy, he says in Batman Boat Parties, yeah, he knows about that one. Um, but uh, what happens is that now you have brands that are putting on really good nights for, um, you know, for the people that really enjoy the music. So Prash, Desi Beast and Aline, their stuff is really good when it comes to, in terms of, um, making sure that you get the experience that you're meant to. Um, uh, you also have uh, yeah, Mehul 
and them guys up in Leicester and Birmingham, them guys are great as well. Shout out to Victorious as well. Yes, Voodoo. You always have to mention Voodoo, right? Because for a long time, they had the scene covered, you know, where there wasn't this whole thing of doing parties every single week. Their, their club nights were where Asians would go, where we would know we would get the music and all the rest of it. So their stuff was great as well. But yeah, I mean, I think in terms of nowadays, you have a couple of brands that put on the music the right way. And I think that's what matters. The way the music is being packaged to us and sold to us is very, very important. And there are some people out there that are just doing it well. You obviously released a sick, sick, sick album, which is world famous. And even till this day, you can just go back there. And you know what? The array of music that you've put out in terms of the different styles is incredible. For me, Miss Sonia is my favourite track. Uh, Shave is my favourite track. Like they're, they're, For me, they're, they're absolutely sick. Are we going to see another Punjabi Hit Squad album on the horizon? Like, you 100% will. I think it's just... I think at the moment, um, Asian music is in this place at the moment where um, it's in different fragments. You get some people like Sid Musiala, who's basically taking off doing what he's doing. And then there's really good stuff to come out from India and Punjab, especially. So, um, you know, I think, I think what we're trying to find is a way to connect it together. I don't want to put out an album for just putting out an album. I want to put out an album that makes sense for putting out albums. Um, you know, and I think we did that with Alicia, Scandalous, all these different people, and it's us as well, you know. Like, if you think about it, my last album is 2012. You know, mm. dots throughout that, but really, truly, our heart is really about getting something together, a body of work that kind of explains exactly where we are going with it. So I think you can make a hit off of one song, but to make an album great, you need more. So I, I'm guessing that you're, what you're trying to say is that you're not just releasing an album for the sake of it, you're doing it strategically where when you drop the album, be for a, a, a massive purpose in terms of like progression within the Asian music, so as opposed to dropping it for just for the hell of it. Yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, you know, we don't, we don't want to be in this case the way we just drop music just for the sake of it. It's not, it's not but at the same it. time... We're, we're waiting, bro. Like, no, I know it's... <laughs> but do you know what it is? I've got a lot of music. And I think that this year is a bit of a write-off. And like I said, initially... Absolutely. What happens is that if I've got a whole hard drive full of dancehall music and dancehalls are closed, it's going to be slept on, man. So yeah, like you said, we did say that. We're going to, like, just hold fire a little bit and then come with some fire. Although, like, I remember that somebody's going to have to bring up a tweet that I put up, like, early last year. <laughs> yeah, and they're going to hold you to it, man. Yeah, yeah, man, I'm going to get it. You know, no, no one got it in this year, man. Everyone's safe. Um, I've got one last question for you, sir, because uh, I don't want to keep everyone from leaving, but it's very, very important. I feel it's something that's very close to my heart. Now, being of an Asian, Asian person, such as yourself, getting into certain things, I'm not saying that I, the opportunities are difficult because the opportunities are there. Um, but I feel that being from an Asian background, we feel that we feel a type of way where ourselves feel very apprehensive going out to get the opportunities because of where we've come from, whereby we don't always have the kind of the backing from the parents and so on and so forth. What my question is, is that what advice would you give to people who are trying to become like the mainstream DJs, the club DJs, the producers who really don't have that kind of within themselves, that kind of like that security, that kind of you know, um, what's the word? How can I say it? You, do you get what I'm trying to say? Is that they're really trying to, 
they don't have the confidence that's exactly what it is what would you say to them in terms of trying to trying to steer them in the right direction of where they want to be musically i think that nowadays you can look at other people um and what they're doing and they can be your guide to exactly how you're meant to be through this industry you know before you might not have had that like if i wanted to know what 50 cent was like or jay-z would like i'd have to read about it and that would be ages now i can go into instagram and i can look at how a person moves and i can see how he talks and interviews in terms of you know if you look at breakfast club great interviews online you can kind of see how they're moving that should give people enough to also pick up books and read about anything really but you know if you if you're going into music let's say you look at music books and look at how different people have moved there that should give you a little bit of confidence to know and you've got the information now so now it's about how you then brand yourself and about how seriously you take it you know if you're going to be if you and I, and, I, and I always find this a little bit weird even with our pages as well that you know if you're trying to be a serious dj and show off your skills and all the rest of it and then the next post is about you you know going and pranking someone you're giving a mixed message already so i think you definitely need to turn around and take it seriously in terms um, of your consistency yeah man and i i think nowadays that because you have your cv on your phone you know you have it with instagram you have it with your facebook all that kind of stuff people will lock onto it you know people will will naturally gravitate to it initially it'll be your friends and then slowly 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 you'll start coming out i mean if you look at engagement yeah man if you look at lockdown it's really really brought out djs and in terms of how great they are mixing now that like if you think about it i mean even you know other DJs that are out there, yourself, everyone, if you play tunes and if you play um, songs and if you're in a club, you will most likely play a kind of certain type of playlist, right? You, uh, you know, you know that there will be these certain type of tunes being played regardless of where because you're, you're catering to a crowd. But when you're at home and you're doing an Instagram live, you can turn around and take this mix anywhere you want to go. So if mm -hmm. I want to mix David Bowie into my whatever little you know, whoever, <laughs> I can do that because it's at yeah. home. It's at home. And if you don't like it, you can press the end button and see later. <laughs> yeah, and then knock off the live. Yeah, exactly. Right. So now it's really, really expanded what DJs are doing. You know, Continental GT is doing great things. Um, the American DJs as well. You know, J uh, Jazzy Jeff does one every single... Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, I see that. Yeah. Look at all these things and you look at how creative people are being and they're getting those numbers because of that, you know, and I know that they're, they're something, they, it seems like it's a, it's quite far away, but really you're the people that you want to connect with are sometimes really, really close to you on the phone, man. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I think um, I'm put a lot more, man. Like the, the world's a lot smaller than what you think it is. So, definitely. Um, definitely. Um, just before we go, I know we've got a few minutes left. Where can we? You're on BBC Asian Network every Friday and Saturday, seven till ten pm. Yeah. Um, so we're looking for some fresh music this Friday and Saturday, no doubt. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. I just play the tunes over and over again, man. <laughs> no, <laughs> I, yeah. So I mean, Fridays and Saturdays, you know what we do? We just always set up that party, and especially considering that all the clubs are closed, we're bringing the club straight to your speakers at home, man. So hundred percent. That's the motto for the for the, for the weekend. Definitely, Rav. 
thank you so much for speaking to me. Thank you for taking the time to, to give me your time. And, uh, you know, like I said, we really appreciate what you guys are doing from a musical perspective. And uh, it's a blessing. Um, so, yeah, man, just thank you so much for what you've done, especially for me being a young Asian, listening to all your music over the years. And for Absolutely. a lot of people, a lot in their life. I'm glad. You know what? Even if one piece, even if nobody acknowledges it, even if you're trying to break down the door and it breaks down for you, man, like we're happy, man. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you acknowledge that. But also, like, trust me, bro. and a lot of people do too, bro. So please, hopefully, you keep that to heart, man. But yeah, thank you so much. I hope I'll speak yeah. to you soon. And uh, yeah, man. Subscribe to that as well. Before I go, I want everyone to subscribe to this channel as well. Your channel, not mine. Don't worry about me, man. Thank you, man. And likewise, everyone is okay. Please listen to this. Lock on. Um, I'm going to put all the socials. This video is going on YouTube, so I'll put yeah, all man. the socials up on there as well. And I think it's important just like going on to the thing that I think it's important that people like you exist, yeah, in the space of where we are right now because um, I see that you're not only just doing, you say, you know, you're Asian, but you're not doing Asian music. And I think you're very, very important to what is needed right now. We need more integration into cultures. We need to understand more cultures. We need to make sure that we are definitely around in, in different places, man. So definitely support. That's what it's all about, man. Thank you, man. Integration is the only way we're going to move forward, man. So 100%. Yeah, Thank man. you, bro. Take care, my brother. God bless, man. Take care of yourself. And we stay in touch, man. Yeah, man. Peace.